Maybe I got a brush up on my Jewish history, to be honest. <laughs> what about the jelly donuts? I didn't have to learn that, which would have been a much better life skill to have. I mean, the yes. history clearly didn't stick. So. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the state is struggling to find beds for inmates who've been found mentally incompetent to stand trial and are languishing, sometimes for months, in jails instead. Local residents and elected officials of the Lake Maurepas area gathered in Baton Rouge on Tuesday evening to voice opposition to a proposed project in which a Pennsylvania-based company would pump millions of tons of carbon dioxide under the lake. And a new report from the Bureau of Governmental Research finds the majority of the $388 million the city received in COVID relief has yet to be spent. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hey, Josh. Hey. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hello, Michael. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens Editor, Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Happy holidays to all of you. Nick, we're starting with you in criminal justice. There are over 100 people who've been found mentally incompetent to stand trial across Louisiana who are stuck in jail despite having been ordered care in state mental hospitals, the worst backlog in years. Uh, What's the reason for this? Well, the Louisiana Department of Health, um, who runs the state uh, forensic psychiatric facility, Um, which is called the Eastern Louisiana Mental Health System, or ELMS, says that the backlog is is due to COVID-19. The the facility was really hit hard in the early days of the pandemic, and a large portion of the the population in the facility got COVID, and and there were many deaths at the facility. They had shut down admissions initially for several months, and then periodically had shut down admissions kind of in the following years. Um, And in addition, they also sort of separated it out wards where new admissions would come in and be isolated. And what LDH told me was that this uh, limited their capacity and kind of reduced the number of beds that they had. And then also because no one was being moved, the the backlogs at the jails where these people who had been found incompetent are being held in the meantime um, grew. So that is the, the explanation from LDH. There is somewhere over, you know, around 450 beds at the at the facility, and the backlog now is around 140 people, and so you know that's a significant portion of, of the of of the beds that are that are awaiting new admissions, and people have been waiting for months in in jail um, um, to get in there, and I think that there are civil rights attorneys who have been working on this issue, and I think. There's some question to what degree COVID is the reason or whether or not there's simply, you know, not enough capacity, um, regardless of of what impacts the pandemic had. Right. So what happens when people who are seriously mentally ill are stuck in jail for this kind of length of time? Uh, It's not good. Um, You know, there's there's very limited mental health care in these local jails. I think in Orleans Parish, they actually, I think, have a some more robust care than they do at other places, but it's still a jail. Um, and there's still not kind of the resources that, that you would have at a hospital. In addition to the fact that the jails, uh, the, the kind of conditions at a jail, as you can kind of imagine, are not conducive to uh, people 
people getting better. You know, they're, they're noisy. There are these strict disciplinary rules that can be hard to follow. And when someone is found incompetent to stand trial, it's a, it's a pretty high bar. It means the person can't understand mm. the proceedings that are, are taking place. And, you know, they've had a commission kind of assess their mental health and had a hearing and it's been determined that they're, they're so mentally ill that they, they can't even understand what's going on. So you can imagine that a person like that in an environment where there's lots of, you know, strict rules and they're being held in, you know, oftentimes single or double person cells and isolated with limited kind of social interactions, um, you know, it can really exacerbate the, the problems. And, you know, you have that drag on for, for weeks or months at a time. And, you know, it can, it can get pretty bad and people can, can, you know, have punishment for, for disciplinary infractions that can even, you know, accrue new criminal charges. So it's, it's not good. Is this a new problem? No, it's not. And civil rights attorneys have been, you know, they first sued the Louisiana Department of Health about this very issue back in 2010 and pretty quickly got a favorable initial ruling from, from a judge in the case and entered into an agreement with the, with the Department of Health in 2011 that where they basically agreed we need to be getting these people uh, treatment faster and agreed to admit them within a month. Um, and ideally, you know, even before that. And so that agreement lasted in 2014. And then shortly after that, these same attorneys sued the Department of Health again, um, this time focusing on people who had been found not guilty by reason of insanity. Basically, what they said was, you're getting people who have been found incompetent in more quickly, but now there's this other group of people who are, who are languishing instead. Um, so basically, this litigation has been going on since since 2010. And in various ways, you know, they've been accusing the Department of Health of not providing timely care for these people. Um, so in 2016, they entered into another agreement where they're required to provide care within 15 days of an order. At this point, they are clearly not in compliance with that uh, order. And there's kind of some ongoing litigation to determine what uh, course of action needs to be taken. Right, because so if 15 days is the new um, mark, but there's no place to put them, what recourse do they have? I mean, they can say, okay, yeah, we will, and but if there are no beds. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, it does become an issue of, of capacity and, and the state sort of making the decision that resources need to be put into both, you know, expanding the the number of beds at Elms, and then also finding new community placements where people can be, can be, you know, transferred to and, and kind of triaged from Elms to, to other, uh, to more community-based treatments. And, you know, the Department of Health has said that in the next year, they, they are looking to, um, to do that and to, to find, you know, they said they want to expand external capacity by upwards of a hundred beds and, the details on that are still unclear. I kind of sent in a number of follow-up questions related to that, and it doesn't seem like uh, they have answers yet or they didn't provide them to me. Right, even just where the funding would come from. If they were going to do some sort of, um, you called it triage, I would say another inept or inapt uh, term would be a halfway house or some you know, some kind of place for them to, to be prior to having room at the state-run facility. Uh, wouldn't that require a bunch of uh, money to build or to find? 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, they talked about entering into a cooperative endeavor agreement with an outside provider. And, you know, I think similarly that I think, yeah, it will require some some allocation of, of new resources. And like I said, I think the details are still unclear, but it's something that, you know, we'll kind of continue to follow up on and, and see what actual action is is taken. Right. Okay. All right. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. All right, Josh, Lake Moripah area residents and elected officials spoke out against a proposed blue hydrogen project that would allow the company Air Products to pump carbon dioxide under the lake. The focus of this meeting was for a test well permit, but that didn't stop those gathered from raising other concerns they have with the project. Tell us about the project. Absolutely. So this is a um, blue hydrogen project, like you said, and um what 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 that basically means is um, this facility would would be producing um, mostly ammonia, and um, from that process, you have a carbon dioxide byproduct. And instead of just allowing that to kind of release into the atmosphere, carbon dioxide, of course, is a a greenhouse uh, gas uh, contributing to to climate change. The, the idea is that uh, they're going to, um, you know, supposedly uh, store this carbon uh, deep underground, uh, sequester it permanently about a mile un- uh, underground underneath uh, Lake Moripah in these uh, geological structures. Is not to mention the, 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 the feedstock here, which is natural gas, which uh, itself is mostly composed of methane, um, which is another uh, greenhouse gas. So, so that's another component to it. But that's kind of the idea is, is that there's going to be this facility up um, in a central parish in, in Burnside, and they're going to be piping the carbon dioxide from that facility down, I believe it's about 30 miles or so down t- uh, to Lake Moripah, where they're planning to uh, sequester it underground. So there is this permit application for a uh, test well, it's called a class five uh, test well that they're going, uh, that they would like to to drill in uh, part of the lake, I believe in, in the um, uh, St. John the Baptist uh, kind of corner of, of the lake. It's, it's a test well, it's, it's kind of like a test run. Um, they're eventually going to um, be having a, another kind of well in the lake um, for this project, those are called class six wells, but we're not at that point yet. This is kind of one of the, I guess if you want to call it a preliminary uh, step of the process. Tell us who was at Tuesday's meeting. You know, there there were, I think there were about 50 people there uh, in total and maybe um, 20, 25 spoke and, you know, uniformly opposed to this specific project uh in Lake Moripah you know there there were more than a few who made it clear that they're not opposed to you know the gas industry to the oil uh industry you know that they many of them have have worked in in uh in those industries and um they they're supportive of them in general it's just that, it's just that this specific project would uh they're, they're 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 viewing it as like a direct threat to this lake that is uh really pristine 
It's it's a source of recreation for for people all over. Um, it's it's a source of livelihood for uh, different fishermen and, and and crabbers, and and that might all be adversely affected. And you know, they're basically saying like, hey, please please slow down. You know, we're you're 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 going you're going too fast. We don't have an environmental impact statement. Um, there we have these questions about fault system that runs from uh, Baton Rouge to Denham Springs and, and whether drilling here might impact that, might kind of um, agitate that, that fault system. Uh, they're, they're, they're concerned about, you know, leakage. Uh, if, if this carbon dioxide leaks out, uh, leaches out, what impact might that have on uh, aquifers, on, on, on people's drinking wells, on the safety of those on the lake. There are a, a lot of unanswered questions. And, and one of the, the major things that these people raised was that um, this kind of injection well at, at, at this scale is really unproven at this point. Right. And why should why should Lake Moripa, of all places, be the guinea pig for this technology? I remember talking about this a few weeks ago and that this technology has been implemented in other areas other uh industries but not this one yet and so they were it was an unproven technology that they were contemplating using so what did the officials say what what happened at the meeting so this this was really just a chance for the public to to voice their concerns for this uh the louisiana department of natural resources uh office of uh conservation to to just basically hear their concerns uh, as as they consider this permit, so there there was you know virtually no uh, response from the officials who who were on the dais. Uh, um, they're they're going to integrate these concerns in, in, into the you know their their consideration, and and people have um, uh, until today uh, to to submit written comments. So it it was kind of just a one sided affair in in that sense. Okay. All right. So what happens next for the company that's pro doing this proposal? So there are um, there are a number of different stages uh, in, until you know this this project is is actually underway. Uh, there there's another test well that that they um, still need to apply for, I believe. They're they're conducting the seismic survey. Currently, they're they're behind schedule. They they um, originally planned to begin this in October, and it would stretch until the spring. But they just started recently this month. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure exactly when when that's going to end. But the idea there is that they are uh, setting off these these dynamite charges in uh, the 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 lake bed, and and, and the the idea is to to get like these seismic readings yeah. of the right of, of the geological um you know structures underneath there to and stability to see, like it, right and 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 this is where we want to store and this is not where we want to store so there's that process that's ongoing there's already a lawsuit where one of the parishes uh, imposed a moratorium on uh, uh injection wells and um, the company Air Products has has sued, saying that you don't have the jurisdiction uh, to do that. That's that's between you know it's between the us and and the state and you know the 
regulatory agencies. It you know you you guys don't have any say. So there's that uh, component that's ongoing. So um, you know, and and then eventually, I mean, they 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 they'd have to uh, apply for and, and get approval for the these other kinds of wells. These these class six wells that would actually um, be connected to the carbon storage and sequestration, likely from the EPA. Um, although the state of Louisiana has applied for primacy for those wells, so. It's kind of, you know, if the state gets the primacy status before then, then they, this company could hypothetically, you know, go through the state for that um, alternatively. So, you know, a few uh, moving pieces here. Let me ask one more question, Joshua, about the geological testing. The Does the EPA or the U.S. Geological Survey have any input at all in selection of the company that runs the the testing. So in other words, is there a way that the company can sort of buy the results? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? This is a really cynical way to look at it. <laughs> you know, that, that, that would make for a, uh, a really compelling story. If, if, if that were the case, um, I can't say sitting here right now that, um, I, um, I'm aware of, of that having, um, happened or, you know, uh, something that might be in the offing for for this project specifically, but uh, Carolyn, as as always, you know, I'm I'm gonna uh, take what you say uh, to heart, and I will I will keep my eyes wide open uh, for that question, and yeah, I'll, find I'll out digging it. How is that company yeah. selected? Got it. I will I will be on that like white on rice. <laughs> okay, good. All right. Thanks, Josh. Absolutely. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Marta Jusen, editor of The Lens. As a reader of The Lens, you already know that we prioritize truth over profits. Our reporters work tirelessly to provide public service journalism that you can trust because you deserve to have a go-to source for the news that matters most to you. And now, through the end of the year, Newsmatch and the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation will match your new monthly donation 12 times, or double your one-time gift, all up to $1,000 per individual, making your gift even more important. Please give today at thelensnola.org and help sustain your trusted source of news. Thank you, and happy holidays. Michael, the city of New Orleans received $388 million through ARPA, yet a new report from the Bureau of Governmental Research finds that the vast majority of those dollars have yet to be spent. Remind us of this money. Yeah, so this is the money uh, the city received through uh, the American Rescue Plan Act, uh, which Congress passed in 2021 as a pandemic relief measure. Um, and this money was was pretty huge for you know a lot of places, but New Orleans included. Um, cities were dealing with you know big revenue losses, you know dealing with budget cuts um, and, and clawbacks. And this money was you know kind of a, a godsend, but you know in big part because the money was very flexible. Um, federal funds often come with a lot of strings attached, very strict parameters under which the money can be spent. Uh, but this money really you know, allowed governments, local governments to use it, you know, basically to fill in gaps in their budget because of revenue loss, which made it very valuable. 
Um, but it's also made, you know, because of that flexibility, it's, it's been a little hard to track um, how all this money has been spent. Um, you know, obviously when a city gets an influx of cash like this, especially in a disaster situation, um, the public is really interested in, you know, where that money's going um, and what the city's priorities are. Um, but it, it's been a little difficult to figure out exactly where the money is going in this report um, from VGR. Um, I think gave us the most comprehensive look we've seen so far. Okay. And what did the Cantrell administration originally say they want to do with the money? Yeah. So when, when you know, the city first got the, the cash, um, basically, you know, a lot of people started talking about how the money should be used, which priority should, should this go to? Should we invest in sewage and waterboard infrastructure or public safety initiatives? And um, basically the Cantrell administration, you know, basically said, hold your horses, like, this money is not going to be used for, you know, new initiatives or special projects. This money is to help basically float the budget um, where we want it to be to pre-pandemic levels. Um, and this money will be used to just kind of fill in the gaps of the missing revenue that we have. You know, um, the city relies heavily on sales taxes to fund all of government services. And obviously during business closures during COVID, um, that was deeply affected. A city like New Orleans also, you know, gets affected like this more than other cities because it's very tourism dependent, right. um, has a very tourism dependent economy. And so when people aren't coming here spending money, we take a big budget hit. Um, so basically they said, you know, we're going to be very, very conservative about, about this money. We're going to assume that um, the pandemic will still be affecting our revenues for the next five years. So we're going to spread out this $388 million over all those years to just kind of fill in the gaps. Um, which is, you know, what they did basically with the first half of the money in 2021 and 2022, they kind of just injected this money into the general fund budget. Uh, um, but you know, that, that made it kind of hard to track, right? Because the mm. kind of the accounting way this was done was that all of the money was dumped into mostly into the fire department budget, a little bit in the police department budget, but the money didn't just stay there. Basically, um, you know, one way to think about it is that the fire department with all of this extra federal cash, it basically freed up all of the money that was originally going to be used in their budget and allowed the city to move that to, you know, dozens of different places, you know, funding uh, a position here or a program there. Um, so it was, you know, again, difficult to kind of follow that money to begin with. Um, but that was the original plan for those dollars. I mean, this is stuff we've been tracking and trying to figure out. But again, you know, BGR, if you go look at the report, they do a really good job. I mean, we don't know where all of that money was allocated, but we know some of it, and and BGR lays it out really beautifully. All right, so report. now they they've they have figured out that some of it hasn't been spent, right? Yeah. So so tracking where the ARPA funds went gets even more complicated by the fact that um, the city spent way less than it planned to in 2021 and 2022. Um, so, you know, again, like we talked about, what ARPA allowed them to do is basically, you know, budget for 2021 and 2022 as if they were just normal years with normal revenue. Um, so the budgets, you know, basically rose to pre-pandemic levels, but the city vastly underspent its budget. Um, you know, a, a big problem has been around staffing. Um, they've had a really hard time hiring enough people, including in the NOPD, which is the single, um, you know, biggest department in the city. Um, and, you know, basically because of that, although ARPA allowed us to budget for a pre-pandemic uh, uh, level of revenue, 
we only spent a portion of that. In fact, in you know both years combined, they basically almost could have spent everything they spent without the help of ARPA whatsoever. Oh wow! Um, so in these years, yeah. So so the money was allocated for to make up for revenue loss that actually wasn't needed because the city wasn't able to spend the the money in time. Right, and so right. what the BGR report found was that over these two years, the city's fund balance, which is basically just all of the extra cash we have at the end of the year, um, over the last two years has grown by roughly the equivalent amount uh, of money that, of ARPA funds that have been injected into the budget. So right. in some ways, ARPA just let the that, that kind of fund balance grow massively um, over the last two years. So the fund balance is is ballooning, but not all thanks to ARPA funds. It's because the the inability to spend some of it too, just because of pandemic related hiring problems and whatnot. Yeah, and and you know I think it's an interesting question. You know if you think about this huge fund balance, you know are these ARPA dollars? Are these on unspent general fund. I mean, how should we really look at these funds? Um, and I, I think one, once the ARPA funds were just dumped into the general fund budget, it, it becomes a, impossible to say for sure what's an ARPA dollar and what's not, right? It's not like these are suitcases of cash. You know, once they're put in a bank account and then moved from that bank account, uh, it becomes impossible to tell. You know, I think that it just kind of depends on your perspective. But in this case, you know, again, the point the, the, what, what they said the ARPA money was for was to allow them to spend at pre-pandemic levels, hmm. but they didn't do that. Right. So I think that there's a strong argument to say that essentially what happened was, you know, that ARPA money was converted into fund balance, um, you know, and, and now the city is, um, you know, planning on, on you, you know, it, they're now planning on, on, on a lot of one-time, a big one-time spending spree for all these special new projects using fund balance and remaining ARPA dollars. And so, you know, again, in the beginning, you know, you remember like people, when we first got this money, people said, you know, what special projects are we going to spend this on? The city said, no, 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 this is just floating the boat. Um, it's not, you know, new stuff. Um, but now we're back at a point where we're kind of at step one again, where we have all this money that the city is now going to go forward with, you know, with the, the, this one time special project type spending. Okay. Now, um, God forbid something like this happens again, but what are the lessons, if any, about how the transparency of these funds operated or how, how the government used them and what transparency measures should have been uh, in place or not? Yeah, I, you know, looking at the BGR report, they really point to two transparency issues. The first was, you know, as we talked about, when you know, when when you use a fund like this for something as broad as you know, filling in the gaps of our you know um, deficit budget, without more specific accounting from the administration, it was really impossible to tell where these dollars were actually going. Um, so that's kind of the first level of it. But I, you know, I think the second level is. We've actually, you know, on a prior podcast, we talked about the fact that the city um, kind of in a last minute move at this year's budget hearings allocated hundreds of millions of dollars in one time spending. Um, there was not a lot of public discussion on on those items. Um, but, you know, a big portion of that was ARPA and fund balance, you know, and again, as we've talked about this fund balance that we have now is really closely tied to ARPA spending. And, um, you know, I think that the report says that 
you know, similar to what we talked about before, uh, that all this special spending came up for a city council vote, vote without much discussion, without much public input. Um, and, you know, basically what the report ends with is there's still, you know, over $100 million left um, in ARPA, even more in fund balance that still has to be allocated. Um, and that, you know, the city council should do a better job at kind of, mm. you know, letting the public weigh in on that. Right. All right. So little goodies in everyone's stockings, I guess, for next year. Yeah, there's a lot of money going around. You know, we, we published a report um, uh, a couple of weeks ago um, where we lay out, you know, a lot of what this special funding is going to do. So if you want to kind of see more details, you should check that story out. Rebates for all citizens who pay tax in New Orleans? I did not see that on the administration's <laughs> list. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, nevertheless, happy holidays, all of you. Have safe travels if you're traveling. Happy holidays, y'all. Yeah, have so, a good holiday. We're off next week, holidays. so see you in 23. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Eldman. Thanks to our guest this week, Nick Crastle, Joshua Rosenberg, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor, Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays.